America's technology hubs pushed the country and the world forward. Among them, Austin, Boston, New York, Seattle, and of course, Silicon Valley. But as big and productive as these cities and regions are, many of their benefits are wasted because it's so darn expensive to live there, and so many of us can't and don't. That's lost lots of Americans individually in terms of jobs and wages, and America overall in terms of foregone productivity and economic growth. Yet we don't want an America that prospers only on the coasts and withers within. After all, not everyone can move to Palo Alto. Today I'm speaking with University of California Berkeley economist Enrico Moretti. His 2012 book, The New Geography of Jobs, brought to light much of the data showing that high-tech industries tend to cluster together in small areas. He has repeatedly returned to this subject, most recently in his new paper, The Effect of High-Tech Clusters on the Productivity of Top Inventors. Enrico, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, a lot of your research looks at how innovation-based businesses tend to cluster together in these sorts of tech hub cities and you know, metro areas, perhaps the most famous of which is Silicon Valley. And you also look at how the vitality of these hubs is important, not just to those regions, but more broadly to the national economy. So I want to start off by asking, how concerned should I be as someone who doesn't live in San Francisco or the Bay Area? That San Francisco seems to be a poorly managed city. You have tech companies leaving the city. Uh, it just opened some sort of emerging technology licensing office. It would seem to me that if San Francisco is an important tech hub, it's really important that it be a well-managed city. Uh, it seems like that would be a problem. What we've seen over the past 30 years, it's an increased concentration of good jobs in cities like San Francisco, but not just San Francisco. Um, Seattle, Boston, Austin, Raleigh, Durham are, are also great examples. Uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley are by far the greatest concentration of innovation sector jobs, uh, both in the tech sector, not only defined, but also much more broadly. Um, one main uh, source of uh, policy concern is that this area has been quite hostile to new housing development. Uh, so it's an area that where labor demand has increased tremendously uh, because of the vitality of the tech sector, but housing supply has not kept up. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take a PhD in economics to figure out that, that the cost of housing is, is what, 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 a, what you know, the increasing cost of housing are going to be the main effect. Um, and I think this is mostly due to policy decisions on the part of, uh, it's not just the city of San Francisco, it's all the cities in the peninsula, meaning the Silicon Valley, as well as the East Bay, that are incredibly opposed to, to new housing. And that's a major drag on the overall growth of, of the sector, but I think also on uh, U.S. economic growth. So... Uh... Ideally, you, you, you have these sorts of high productivity cities, and it's good when other businesses locate there uh, because, you know, they you have people sort of moving from business to business or they open businesses and it's sort of a, a virtuous circle. Plus, as you've mentioned in your research, it's not just people working at those companies. People, they also create other jobs in the service sector, uh, and those jobs are, are sort of well-paying jobs. 
So these, so the, so the, so these clusters just don't help sort of the, on the high end. It helps more broadly. And the, the housing is a big issue because one, people can't move there or it's hard to move there. And then if they do move there, I imagine housing costs eat up a lot of those income gains. That's right. Uh, if you think about the boom towns of the past, uh, you know, in the 50s, the 60s, places like Detroit or Cleveland, um, those were the places that would attract talent and workers from all over the U.S. Those were places where it was easy for the average worker, average family to move to and find affordable housing uh, right away. The boom towns of today are much more supply constrained. Uh, the San Francisco's, the Boston's, the Seattle's, they have decided not to add enough housing in, uh, in their within their boundaries, which means that the average family finds it much harder to find affordable housing uh, if they wanted to move there. Um, it also means that, the exist that a lot of the benefits of the incredible economic dynamism of, of, of these areas end up being captured by incumbent landlords uh, who were lucky enough to have bought land before uh, the current boom. It, is, this an un, is this an unsolvable issue? Have you identified, or do you feel like sometimes you've identified a big problem and that's has potentially that's having big economic effects and the solution seems fairly obvious, but the politics are utterly impossible? Well, the first point to recognize is that the decision for of not adding housing uh, although it has some geographical component obviously you know you don't you can't build on 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 the ocean or in the bay uh, but a lot of that decision is a political decision is uh, is incumbent voters mostly homeowners who decide they rather keep their uh, keep land very scarce by constraining uh, the number of housing uh, that, that, that it's allowed to be built. Um, there, there, is, there are solutions to it. Uh, there are less than optimal solutions and there are better solutions. Uh, one less than optimal solution is probably what Austin is doing. Austin is putting very little uh, housing constraints. Um, it's growing. Uh, I was just in Austin uh, three weeks ago and I've never seen so many cranes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in my life. Uh, Austin has exactly the same labor demand shock that San Francisco has. It's the same industries, essentially, uh, literally the same employers that are hiring there, like here. Um, but Austin is allowing uh, unchecked growth. They, they, everybody can build or, or, you know, largely unconstrained growth. I think this is positive for housing prices because housing prices are lower than in San Francisco, although they're, they're growing <laughs> in Austin as well. But by allowing growth everywhere uh, in the region, they're also having some negative side effects, uh, such as traffic, congestion, uh, and like you don't want to be at, at peak hour in one of those freeways. It's, it's, they're really jammed. A better way would be to concentrate development, uh, to allow much more housing development, but concentrate housing development near the urban core uh, and increase the provision of uh, public transit so that you can get the additional housing supply increases, which help keeping cost of living in check, but you, don't, but you add less to congestion and, and traffic. And uh, so, so finding the right balance between an extreme case like the Bay Area where nothing gets built 
and another extreme where everything gets built, but without a lot of planning, I think it's probably, you know, it's not rocket science. It's not like, it, it, this is not like a, some secret, uh, it, it, it's political will. Are there cities which have been able to like strike this, this balance? Um, I would place Seattle in the middle uh, between San Francisco and Austin. Seattle has been uh, much more pro-growth than San Francisco. It has it traditionally had a much more less political housing entitlement process. So if a developer wants to build, it's much less political. Uh, uh, the, the entire process is, is certainly there are community inputs, but uh, it, it's more shielded from the endless series of appeals that we see here in the Bay Area. At the same time, it has been successful at concentrating uh, much of the growth in parts of the city that are near downtown that were completely underutilized 20 years ago and that are uh, and has been more successful at limiting sprawl on the outskirts, which is what generates typically most of the traffic and most of the environmental cause. So I don't think Seattle is by any means perfect. Uh, their cost of living has increased significantly in Seattle, by the way, but less than it would have increased had it not been for a much more pro-housing growth policy in the right places. And, and to get those sorts of policies, is, is it just, I mean, how, I mean, how does that happen? Is it just, you, you know, you, get, you just happen to get the right people in office, just the people who live there have a different sort of a, a different attitude toward growth and development. Uh, it certainly seems highly negative uh, in the ba- in the in the Bay Area. Um, again, so is this? Do you just have to sort of get lucky, uh, or is this sort of a solvable political problem? I think it's a solvable political problem, uh, and I think even in the Bay Area, you start seeing some progress. For example, the city and county of San Francisco which was incredibly restricted until recently, has become a little bit more open. I think the progressives in the city are beginning to realize that uh, more housing, yes, it might mean more profit for the developers, but it also means cheaper rent for the renters. So it's quite a progressive policy. Um, The worst offenders are now not the city of San Francisco or the city of Oakland. Actually, they are the smaller communities in Silicon Valley and East Mm -hmm. Bay. They are remain incredibly restricted. Uh, and you see crazy situation where there could be an empty or semi-empty parking lot next to the train station. <laughs> um, and uh, the, the, you know, the citizen will be up in arms fighting any building that is taller than two stories, even right. if you know, this will be next to the train station and there is a, an empty parking lot. So I, I think, I think they, it, 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 it Take some time for these battles to be winning. But I, I think the, in, in the most progressive parts of the Bay Area, meaning San Francisco and, and Oakland, this notion that more housing is, is good for, for low-income residents is beginning to percolate. So, so if we did policy better, would, would these uh, hubs, which, are, which have been too restrictive in housing and maybe, you know, as well as some others that maybe have struck a better balance, would they just would they have just much bigger populations because they'd be more affordable and more Americans would would move there because they they would see that oh I can now I can afford there and there's good jobs and maybe the jobs will be in a tech company or maybe it'll be a service job would those areas just be bigger? They'll be bigger and there'll be two main effects. First of all, as you pointed out, the they'll be more affordable. But second, 
which is uh, the point of a recent paper that I wrote with uh, my colleague Chang Tai Shi, uh, there would also be important aggregate benefit in terms of economic growth for the state, the broader region, and the United States. Um, and the idea here is that by allowing more growth in the most productive cities of the U.S., uh, more a larger share of the U.S. workforce would have access to these higher productivity jobs that are now essentially constrained by constraining housing supply. So by making these areas larger, local employers would be able to hire more, to expand more, and more U.S. workers would access this higher productivity, these high-paying jobs that are now are to some extent limited by, by, by housing supply. In, in, in that paper, we find that there will be measurable economically large effect, not just for the region, but also for the U.S. as a whole. How significant would the, would the aggregate uh, impact be on, on the broad economy? We find that the broad economy would experience faster economic growth uh, and that the gain in the average earnings for the average worker in the U.S. would measure in thousands of dollars. Depending on exactly the assumption that you make in the model, it could be three to $5,000 a year for the average worker. I mean, if, is it, I mean, yeah, in a scenario where the most productive U.S. cities uh, relax their housing supply constraints to the level of the median U.S. city. And to what, I mean, to, it seems that this, I mean, because we're, all of a sudden the news, and we're talking a lot about wealth inequality. And is this not, isn't this house, housing issue a big part of the wealth? inequality problem and when you when you're recommending you know more at least sort of these you know kind of looser housing policy allow more housing be built that's also an anti-inequality policy right it it's uh, I would say it's an anti-inequality policy in the terms of income uh, even more than wealth in the mm -hmm. sense that it would allow more people to have access to well-paying jobs that are now harder to get uh, because of housing costs so it would increase the number of uh, uh, of U.S. workers who can afford to have access to, to, this, uh, uh, to these good careers and, and good employers. Um, there is also, there could be also be an effect on wealth, but I think that most of the research on wealth focuses on, on, on uh, other type of, other forms mm -hmm. of capital, uh, uh, not just housing. So it'd be great if, we, if more people could move to those, um, to those cities. Uh, and maybe, uh, maybe, you know, there'll be housing reform and, and, and that'll happen. But if that doesn't happen, then what? Do eventually these cities become more expensive and do, do, do both, uh, you know, potential workers and entrepreneurs, do they just end up going to other, you know, other places? Do they end up moving to uh, starting their businesses in, in, in Columbus, Ohio, or, you know, or other sort of smaller cities? And therefore you sort of, you know, you create, you'll end up creating sort of smaller tech hubs, but more distributed throughout the country, and sort of, sort of spread the wealth that way. Well, um, up to this point, we don't see that happening on a large scale. Uh, and let me be more precise for what I mean. Uh, in some of my work, I've looked at the productivity differences that, especially workers in the innovation sector, exhibit in in different cities. And what you see is that this star cities, the, 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 these technology hubs, yes, they cost way more uh, in terms of, to a firm, in terms of labor cost, in terms of real estate cost, but the productivity advantages are still larger 
than the cost. So they're still a good deal for, for, for employers, especially those that hire a lot of uh, engineers, a lot of uh, PhD in, in, in the sciences uh, and, and focus on, 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 on new technologies, new products. What you see is some evidence of uh, outsourcing or, or, or opening new, new, uh, new offices in other cities for parts of these firms that are not, that are not crucial, uh, that are not, not R&D, that are not uh, the core functions of these innovation firms. So a lot of Bay Area firms have offices in Utah, in Austin, as I mentioned, in Colorado, uh, and increasingly uh, in, in, in the South, um, uh, Texas first, but also Tennessee and other states. Um, but the type of offices that they open there at this point are not the core uh, set of jobs that make those, those firms successful. They're not the engineers, they're not the scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are ancillary positions. Sometimes it's HR, sometimes it's, uh, it's customer service. You know, don't get me wrong. Those are all great jobs. So I'm, <laughs> it's great for the receiving cities to have them. But at this point, the productivity advantages of being in these centers, in, the, in these innovation centers, still outweigh the cost. Do you, do you see that changing? I mean, anywhere near a tipping point where, you know, I, you know, I, I, I follow a lot of folks on, on, on Twitter and they follow me who are, uh, you know, are in the Bay Area and obviously you, know, you get a lot of complaints about, about housing costs, but a variety of other complaints. And, and you know, are, are we near the point where it's just it's it's just not worth it? And instead, uh, I'm going to I'm going to try to start my company or I'll move my company to uh, to Austin or Salt Lake City or someplace else. Um, no, I don't. I, I don't think we're close to that tipping point yet. Uh, and part of the reason is that um, you still see uh, an increase in the agglomeration of certain type of jobs in, in the Bay Area or or in Seattle or in Boston. The productivity advantages are still higher. I mean, we keep talking about the Bay Area, but this you know the, the story is much broader. Right? You know, and Boston is the same. If you look at what happened in Cambridge uh, and the amount of uh, life science and biotech-related jobs that are agglomerated in, in Cambridge is staggering. Um, Cambridge is and Boston are one of the most expensive areas to do business in, in, in the U.S., just like San Francisco, lower, but, but not all that different. Um, and yet, companies keep, keep agglomerating there despite having uh, the option of, of moving to cheaper locations. So... I, I think that you know the 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 fact that companies are that, that, that and VC investment keeps agglomerating in a, a limited number of star cities, uh, but then some type of position, some type of offices get open in other cities. They're perfectly consistent with each other. In fact, we've seen the same with finance. Finance started this process uh, 60 years ago when a lot of the banks, a lot of the investment uh, companies and, and later the edge funds started delocalizing some of the positions to cheaper mm-hmm. places. First it was New Jersey and then it was Arizona and then it was Bangalore. But you know, there's <laughs> the core uh, jobs in, in, in finance, the headquarters, the, the main ed funds remain in either New York or Southern Connecticut, um, despite this process having gone on for, for decades. And I don't think tech will be all that different. There will be 
outsourcing of some positions, but the core we remain in this in these innovation hubs. What would you tell a mayor or governor? I mean, public officials around the country would love, you know they would love to have a tech hub, you know, uh, in their state, which is one reason we saw we saw all this bidding, uh, you know, for Amazon to relocate its employees. How how it seems like that's a very difficult to, thing to do to try to purposely from the top down say I'm going to create a innovative technology hub in my state or in my in my city. How successful are, are have governments been in doing that in the United States? I am skeptical that it's something that you can engineer uh, top down. Uh, if you look at the history of the innovation hubs in the U.S., whether they're the big ones the Silicon Valleys, the Seattle's, the Boston's, or the small ones. Um, it's hard to find examples where an innovation hub was explicitly created by a deliberate, explicit policy on the part of the county or the state. That they said, we're gonna create the new, the next Silicon Valley there. Uh, there aren't that many examples. Uh, in fact, there, to my, in my reading of the history of the innovation hubs, there is no examples like that. Uh, the typical story, the typical way in which these innovation hubs come about is much more organic. It's typically the success of one local company uh, in one new technology or in one new sector that, that it becomes the seed around which the cluster uh, agglomerates. Uh, once that seed is in place, you start seeing this, this, this self-reinforcing mechanism of increased of increased concentration. But the initial seed in the US has never been uh, a deliberate policy on the part of, of local government. It's really hard to know <laughs> which, which company is the next, is the next uh, Microsoft and which company is the next Amazon example. Right. It's hard for venture capitalists, let alone for mayors and for governors. Do, do you think it was a crazy, you know, given given all the economists' warnings, when Amazon, when especially when Amazon said they were going to put fifty thousand jobs at one point in one city, and given how hard it is to engineer a tech hub, do you think it was crazy for these you know cities and governors to try to, you know, pitch Amazon and try to you know immediately create a tech hub by having fifty thousand Amazon jobs, since it seemed like such a kind of a one you know a once in a generation thing? Do you think it was worth the you know, you know, rolling the dice, and if you're if you're a city or state to try to do that and and, and grab those jobs, and maybe create so the, a hub. The second headquarter of Amazon is, is very interesting because you know if you're thinking about a big shock that could generate a hub where uh, there was none. I mean, that's that's as big as it can get. You know, fifty thousand tech jobs all concentrated um, is huge. It's typical, you don't the typical uh, new opening is much smaller by an order of magnitude. So um, I don't, uh, I, I'm not a great fan of offering $6 billion, uh, which was one of, the, one of the bids for one of the 20 finalists uh, for uh, attracting a, a new company. Amazon, the, new, the second quarter of Amazon, especially when it was one, was gonna have uh, a lot of uh, clustering benefit for the community that were Amazon uh, was going to go, and I think I think DC will get significant benefits. The benefits are twofold. The first benefit is um, is it's going to be a magnet for other companies that will agglomerate around it, and the second benefit is the 
all the additional benefits that are all the additional jobs that are not in tech, but they are going to be in the local service sector sector that will exist because you have so many well-paying tech jobs in, in that city. That said, um, you know that doesn't justify billions of dollars in 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 bids. I think that DC or or, or Virginia, I guess, uh, was was quite savvy. I mean, they they were some of the lowest bidders, and they realized early on that. Amazon most likely was not going to choose just based on the bids, but they were going to choose based on the economic fundamentals of an area. So they didn't have to bid as much because it's an incredibly well, uh, it, it's an area with a, a very high, highly skilled labor force. They had incredibly good fundamentals and they didn't need to uh, throw away a lot of taxpayer money with their bids. And in fact, they got the, they, they won the, the second headquarter of Amazon, at least half of it, uh, bidding among some of the lowest bid among the 20 finalists. I, I thought it was a, was a very good decision on their part. I mean, it always seemed unlikely to me that Amazon, especially when it was a big chunk of 50, you know, 50,000 jobs, that they were going to pick, you know, that they were going to pick, you know, Cleveland or, or something, uh, kind of just like, uh, you know, a Midwest city where they were going to pick Indianapolis. I always kind of felt they would end up on the coast. But you have these, you have, you know, a lot of talk about kind of this broader, kind of Rust Belt area, they call them, you know, left behind areas. Well, I mean, what advice would you give policymakers in that area? There's, for instance, there's a proposal to send federal agencies to various, you know, cities in those regions to try to help those regions. Does that sound like a good idea to you? Or what, are there any sorts of economic development issue, you know, you know, policies they could take if, if they're, if it sounds like they're going to be unable to like, you know, create a tech hub um, you know, just by funding a few incubators or something. Right. Um, well, first of all, let me say that I agree with your, the first part of your question, which is it seemed unlikely that Amazon was going to go to Detroit or Cleveland, even when uh, there was a lot of talk about it. Um, as I said then, even before the name of the finalists were released, um, the, the most likely outcome was Amazon going to an area w- with, a very highly skilled labor force, a very deep talent pool. Um, and and the, if you look at the history of US cities, the biggest predict, the, the most important predictor of, uh, of, of attracting tech businesses and innovation sector businesses is the share of workers with a college degree in the labor force of the city. Uh, it's a share that varies enormously across cities. Uh, some cities have 50% of workers with a college degree or more. DC is one example, and other cities have 10% of, of, of workers with a college degree. Uh, <laughs> these are enormous differences. Uh, and I think that's the, the best predictor of the attractiveness of a city for these type of companies. Uh, in, in, just to put, you, to put this difference in perspective, they're much larger than the difference that you see between the US as a whole and developing economies like Peru and Bolivia. So, so within the U.S., there are some economies that are incredibly well-educated, incredibly attractive to this type of companies, and other economies that are much less so. And it was, to me, clear exactly well before they announced the names that, 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 the, that the former group had a chance of attracting Amazon and the latter doesn't. Now, the question is what to do about the latter group. Uh, yeah. um, one thing that uh, states have been doing that, that I, I think with, with not so great success is they're engaging in these bidding wars with offering big subsidies uh, to pretty much any 
new plant opening or any new office opening. Uh, it's an incredibly uh, bipartisan policy. Now, blue state governors and red state governors love them equally. Uh, the biggest provider of the subsidy is Texas, uh, which despite its <laughs> free market uh, uh, rhetoric, it's, it's really providing a lot, a lot of, of subsidies. Overall, we're spending, US states are spending in the excess of $80 billion annually in offering subsidies to firms to come to their jurisdiction. Now, this is larger than most in the aggregate, larger than most welfare programs that we have in the US. <laughs> um, and you gotta wonder whether this makes sense in the aggregate, because essentially you have states that are, and counties that are bidding against each other for investment that was gonna go somewhere in the US. Um, and uh, to some extent, not probably not fully, but to some extent, it's a zero sum game across, across communities uh, where you're, we're shifting where the investment goes, but essentially the main winners are the, right. are the funds uh, and the main loser are the taxpayers. Uh, the local taxpayers. Which, and, and again, that, that is, you know, and that is one reason, certainly a lot of that kind of thing is one reason, you know, a co many economists were against, um, you know, cities, uh, you know, bidding for Amazon. But I can tell you that when I, whenever I write about your research, so I, I will get some, an email or, uh, or, or a tweet will say, is this the only answer you have for, you know, unemployed coal miners or something? Is it tell them all to move to San Francisco. That is it. You want everybody to move to these high productivity cities, abandon their families, and make the leap. And not everybody's going to move. So what answers do you have for people who aren't going to move? Well, um, I think that one of the, yeah, one of the best investment that state and local government can make today is investment in, in, in public education. I think there is a wealth of evidence that, that, that's one of the best industrial policies that we can create. Uh, and it, it can be at the lower level schooling, at the high level schooling, it could be community colleges. Uh, I think community colleges are vastly uh, underrated as, a, as an important source of skill upgrading for the local workforce. Um, I completely agree that you cannot go to uh, a declining community in the Rust Belt and say, hey, you know, the only solution is move to the Bay Area or to Boston. Boston or to Seattle. I also agree that by investing in, in public education, you cannot expect that community to turn around the next year. Uh, these are long-term economic strategies that take time. Uh, but I think the overall, the, the, the overall the overwhelmingly evidence in, 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 in economic research is that the one, $1 spent in schooling uh, for the local labor force and, and, the, and the local uh, students as as a, 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 an aggregate return uh, for that community much higher than $1 in, in, in the long run. And that's one of the best investment uh, that local communities can make. Much more, the return is much higher than say investing in, in roads or bridges or, or, or rail. Uh, uh, it's higher than the return that they can make in, in other type of, of public spending. And, and this goes back to what I was saying before. Over the past 30 years, the best predictor of economic growth for U.S. communities is the share workers who are well-educated in the labor force. Uh, does that guarantee that mayor that if they invest in their local community college, if they invest in their high school, and invest in lower level of schooling, they're going to get the next Silicon Valley in their jurisdiction right. in five years? No. 
Absolutely not. We need to be honest with that. <laughs> it's, it's a tall order. Uh, it does guarantee, though, that that investment will have a return into higher, in well, better paying jobs in the longer run. The other point that I want to make is that it's not that every community needs to take Silicon Valley blueprint and, and copy. The Silicon Valley industry mix is unique and it's not necessarily the best uh, recipe for every single community. Uh, there are communities that have a, they might have a local uh, uh, industrial employer there, and maybe the solution is to work with the community college to make sure that whatever skill the local employer has, that community college is able to provide. Uh, um, and that that could be an industry quite far from what we see in Silicon Valley. It might have nothing to do with with internet or biotech or 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 or, 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 or data mining or. Or, or advanced material. It could be really working with the existing strength of a community. Do you, and, and as we're sort of nearing the end here, do, what do you think, uh, just two ideas. One I just kind of mentioned uh, briefly was the idea of sending federal, of, of kind of dispersing federal agencies around the country, like sending the agriculture department to, to Kansas or something like that. That's one idea here. And the other, another idea is to have uh, more sort of place-based uh, visas where you encourage immigration to declining areas. Do either of those ideas sound good to you? Um, yes, uh, I, I think they both seems plausible. John Gruber has a very interesting new book where he, he lists a number of you know dozens of potential policies of that type. Um, I think they are all very plausible. Uh, uh, scenarios. I mean, th there are what you want to disperse, though, is not, you know, <laughs> there are federal agencies that, that you can disperse without a lot of uh, a lot of uh, effect on their productivity. Uh, so I'd be in favor of dispersing bureaucracy. <laughs> uh, I'd be much more reluctant in dispersing uh, um, certain type of jobs that are, that require proximity with an, in an innovation cluster. Uh, just for example, NIA job, I wouldn't put them in the middle right. of nowhere. Uh, because it's important that those scientists are part of the intellectual community in in their industry. Uh, it would it would hurt their productivity if we if we uh, outsource them. Um, I would I, I know that John was on your show yes. uh, 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 recently. Um, <clears throat> he has collected a, a, a number of series number of series proposal uh, along those lines that are that that seem to me economically valid. Uh, um, are they gonna completely reverse the decline of the Rust Belt or declining region? Uh, no, but they could help on the margin. And uh, the, and, and, uh, and just real fast, I know uh, about, it, it, again, sort of immigration, bringing in immigrants uh, to sort of place-based areas. Sure. Uh, one thing, though, is that immigrants tend to go where good jobs are. Uh, the, right. the, the, the thing that is most striking is that when you look at the high-skilled immigrants, where they are, <laughs> they are even more concentrated in uh, in star cities than, than natives. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Silicon Valley here is dominated by Chinese, Indian, Italian, French engineers who are who are here because good jobs are. So, uh, I guess we're talking about uh, um, um, policies that are not unlike the one that you see in Northern Europe, where you were part of the, for example, refugee status is tied to uh, a given community. Uh, and yeah, I think, I think those could very, be very helpful, uh, at least in the short run, to revitalize some, some declining communities. 
Enrico, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.